Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, since last year, we know one of the top health concerns, of course, has been COVID-19. Now there's another respiratory disease spreading throughout the South, and health experts experts warn kids are most at risk, and it's called respiratory syncytial virus, or some plain folks like me say RSV. Now here's how Dr. Eileen Schneider from the CDC podcast describes it. It causes an infection that affects the lungs and breathing passages and is very common. Most children will get it by the age of two, but you can get RSV infection at any age, You can also get infected more than once in your life. Now we'll discuss symptoms, treatments with Dr. Andy Shane of Children's Healthcare Atlanta. Also, reimagining our beloved libraries in the 21st century amid and post-pandemic. All those conversations coming up in a moment. But first this, a South Georgia judge told lawyers they need to work it out in order to to keep jury selection open to the public in the upcoming Ahmaud Arbery case. Now, defense attorneys for the two Brunswick men charged Arbery's murder asked the court to close juror interviews to the public and media. Travis McMichael's attorney, Bob Rubin, yesterday spoke about it on Court TV. Our big concern is for the jury to feel like they're in a safe environment during jury selection so that they can honestly and candidly discuss with us the various sensitive issues that are inherent in the case. Now, the state trial of all three men who chased Arbery down a Brunswick, Georgia street is set to begin in October. The suspects also face federal hate crimes and attempted kidnapping charges. Media outlets cite previous rulings from the U.S. and Georgia Supreme Court mandating that the question of jurors be open to the public and press. Video of one of the men shooting Arbery went viral more than a year ago. Lawyers for the men have claimed they were conducting a citizen's arrest. In other news, DeKalb County will give away $50 prepaid debit cards to the first 300 folks receiving COVID-19 vaccinations tomorrow at one of their three monthly food distribution sites. So, in order, understand this, the first 100 folks at each site will receive a prepaid debit card. The incentive, of course, is to get county residents vaccinated. Only 44% of eligible DeKalb County residents are fully vaccinated, says CEO Michael Thurman, and that's why they're doing all of this. And finally, let the games begin. Although 13 hours difference in time, the Olympic Games in Tokyo are indeed underway. The opening ceremonies, which will be broadcast later this evening, officially kicked off the start some hours ago. Tennis star Naomi Osaka lit the Olympic cauldron for her home nation. And of course, like no other in history, the Summer Olympic Games will take place with little to no spectators. However, there's a solution. They will pump in crowd sounds to make it seem like thousands of people are there in the arenas and stadiums. According to Team USA, there are 20 Georgians competing 
in the summer games. Best of luck to all of you. And of course, stay safe. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We know there are many types of respiratory illnesses caused by various viruses. And there's another respiratory disease that's now in the news. It's not necessarily new, but it's spreading throughout the South, and health experts are warning kids. Our kids are most at risk. It's called respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, and I practice pronouncing that about 20 times just to make sure I had somewhat close to being right. Dr. Andy Shane is chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and the Medical Director of Infectious Diseases at Children's Health Care of Atlanta. Dr. Shane, welcome back to the program. I think we've talked before, haven't we? Uh, Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Rose. Now, before we talk about RSV, I do want to get your thoughts on this because this week there was updated guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is recommending for schools, all students over two years of age, along with staff, they should wear masks, regardless of whether they've been vaccinated against the virus or not. Obviously, you work with so many of these young folks. Uh, Your thoughts on this guidance now? Yes, thanks, Rose. I actually think that this is very, very good guidance, um, especially with the emergence of the Delta variant Um, children under the age of 12 are unable to be vaccinated or protected. And we know from our past experience that universal masking really allows children to remain in school. And that's our number one goal is to keep children in school and participating in in in-person learning. So masking is one thing that will really help us to do that. And Dr. Shane, this follows the CDC's updating its guidance as well, saying, look, indoor mask wearing for unvaccinated students ages two and up is important. But I want to ask you this, because all this back and forth with the mask guidelines, and I've had people send me emails, say it's confusing. You know, health officials should know better. What do you make of all that? What is through your lens? How do you best, how would you best reply to someone that says, what are y'all doing? You keep confusing us. Yes, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I'll have to say that healthcare providers are also confused sometimes as well. So, Um, You know, I think it's really important to remember that 18 months ago, we didn't even know that this virus existed. Mm -hmm. So the amount of knowledge and what we've learned over the past 18 months has been tremendous. And this really is a novel virus. It's affected people in ways that we never imagined. And so I think it's really important. And I know it's very challenging. It's challenging as someone who's a clinician and it's challenging as someone who's a parent and also Um, with medical knowledge, uh, with the changing guidance. But what we really ask people to do is uh, get reputable guidance, 
um, do things that make sense um, and follow the guidance as much as possible. And understand that guidance may change from time to time. We have to act and adjust. That's just been so important in this pandemic. As it relates to COVID-19 now, what have you been hearing from parents and their concerns? Well, I think there are two main concerns. For those that are age eligible for vaccination, we've answered a lot of questions about safety. um, And I think that's always an important question. And we know that these vaccines are very, very safe and that the benefits of being vaccinated for those that are age eligible um, far outweigh the risks of potentially um, obtaining or getting a natural infection. We know that natural infection can be devastating in children and it has an impact beyond the bedside uh, that we are just beginning to learn about. And then the second question is, uh, for those children who aren't eligible yet, parents are asking, when will my child be eligible for vaccination? So um, I think uh, that's, uh, you know, that's something else that hopefully we'll know in the next couple of months. I think we all were hoping for a before school uh, approval for at least school-age children. But, you know, these vaccines have been studied very, very carefully. And safety is a key concern to all policymakers and so really are being evaluated very, very closely. With this current surge, and obviously we know that's due to the Delta variant, and then it was announced this week that last week the death of a five, five-year-old out of Calhoun County, Wyatt Gibson. And from what reports indicate from the family saying there was no underlining conditions here, five years old, you know, dying due to COVID, and we know that that's rare, Correct. Uh, Yes, it is rare. Um, We've had less than um, 20 children in Georgia that whose deaths have been associated with COVID. But even though the death rate is low and every death is is really unfortunate and and very, very sad, but the other impacts are are just tremendous. And so uh, we really have to consider that as well. And, you know, we looked up the vaccination rates for Calhoun County, just about 38 percent with at least one dose. 34% 34% fully vaccinated, you know, and you look at Georgia overall with just 45% with at least one dose, 40% fully vaccinated. When you hear those stats, particularly as we get outside of the, the 13 regions here in, in, in counties here in the Atlanta area, um, that's surprising, not surprising to you, I take it, in those regions? It's not surprising, but I wish it wasn't not surprising. Um, and so the big challenge also with children is that most children get their infections from adults. So if we have adults who are not vaccinated, they're a source of um, disease, a source of virus for other adults and also for children who can't protect themselves. Um, So I think uh, it is unfortunate, but um, county health departments are working very hard. We're working to reach out and make sure that people understand the safety, understand the importance and especially with the emergence of the, um, the variant, uh, which is much more transmissible. And now we're hearing reports of this respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. As I mentioned in our research, it's not necessarily new, but now we're seeing the spread. Uh, first, for our listeners who may not be totally uh, aware of it, and I gave a very brief definition, and you know I'm not a doctor, so uh, what is RSV? So RSV is a virus. Um, it was actually discovered in 1956, and it's really been recognized as one of the most common forms of respiratory illness in children under the age of two and then also actually under the age of five. Um, and it's a virus that affects the lower airways um, in the lungs. And um, often children have start out with a runny nose, cough, fever, 
And children get into trouble when they have difficulty breathing and the coughing and the respiratory symptoms can be so severe that a child may not be able to eat or drink well because they are spending so much work and energy um, on trying to breathe. For most healthy children um, who don't have underlying medical conditions, um, it's a relatively um, uh, quick virus. Um, children may have symptoms for up to a week, uh, cough, runny nose, um, and maybe a little bit of decreased appetite and fever. But for children who have underlying medical conditions, who are born early, who have problems with their heart and lungs, uh, this virus can actually be can be devastating. And between 500 to 1,000 children die each year from the complications of RSV, so it's not entirely benign. You mentioned it since ni- the 1950s. Are, do we know that throughout the decade, sometimes it's it's you know, sort of there's been a spike and then other years it's just been, you know, pretty, pretty common in terms of percentages. How does this this sort of flow throughout the the last few decades? Yes, that's a great question, Rose. And, you know, one of the um, issues is that we've had a lot of advances in diagnostics. And so now we're better able to detect viruses in the, when it was first discovered, we really could initially only use blood tests to know about past infections And then as we've gotten more advanced, we've been able to detect this virus um, in uh, airway passages by molecular methods, which are very, very sensitive, meaning very easily uh, able to detect the virus. But what we do see um, year after year is this sort of very uh, specific seasonal pattern. And here in Georgia, around the end of October or so, we start to see RSV infections. Uh, They peak around uh, December, January. And Sometimes our seasons go through late March and, and early April, of course, coinciding with a, a regular flu season, um, which makes it particularly challenging because then you have those two respiratory viruses that are circulating at the same time. Um, RSV also has a particular pattern in, in uh, North America. It usually starts in Florida, and we start to see cases in the southeast, and then it spreads uh, throughout the United States. What happened this year during the pandemic was uh, most people were um, not out and interacting in the public. And basically we saw very, very few um, uh, RSV infections in children. Um, but now that people have begun to start mixing and socializing again, uh, this virus has uh, had this huge, what we call interseasonal peak. Well, then these latest reports that it's, we see in this peak or we see in this, this spike in the South, Anything unique about that that you all can determine so far? You know, that's a great question, and we've really looked at that. I think that part of it is just uh, the sort of progression of the virus and how it flows um, throughout the country. Um, We, of course, have warmer temperatures in the south compared to the north, so there may be something related to that. It's It's really not clear. But also one of the other issues is that a lot of people travel to the south and the southeast in Florida, um, for vacations, uh, for the warmer places and the beaches. And so some of that might just be a factor of more people mixing together uh, in the southern portions um, of the of the United States. And so it, you mentioned that since it's so common, although if there is if there are underlying underlining conditions, there can be, you know, some concerns there. But the treatment, is it just, you know, because I've always been told, you know, it's a virus, there really is, you don't really get treated for a vi- virus. You have to manage it till it goes out of your system. I don't know if that's true. Maybe my doctor's just been making yeah. that up, but they're probably listening, so I shouldn't say that. But yeah. What is the treatment for it? 
or you know, your doctors are right. Um, well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> for most viral infections, and especially for RSV, um, there is not a treatment. There is a preventive therapy which can be given to children who are at risk of having severe disease, um, and it's given as a shot um, during the respiratory virus season, um, the RSV season, but it, it prevents them from having more severe um, manifestations of an RSV infection. But in terms of treatment, it's really just supportive care. So fluids, sometimes they have to be given intravenously in the vein, oxygen, some children require oxygen, and then uh, making sure that they are doing well from a respiratory perspective and, and fever control as well. And as I mentioned, most children can, um, who have RSV infections uh, do fine at home, but it is the children with underlying medical conditions that we see in the hospital. Well, Dr. Shane, let me ask you this, because now obviously with COVID-19, is it easy, is it a challenge in diagnosing that or misdiagnosing that as opposed to RSV right now? It's very challenging. Um, And especially in children, as we know, and we talked about earlier, COVID-19 may not have some of the more severe um, manifestations in children than it does in adults. So um, a child with a runny nose could have anything. They could have RSV, they could have COVID, they could have parinfluenza 3, which is another respiratory virus that's circulating. I also did just quickly want to mention that in addition to children, RSV also affects older adults. And Mm -hmm. so we see lots of hospitalizations um, related to older adults with underlying medical conditions. So really at the two stages of the lifespan, early and, and later. Earlier in the week, also, Dr. Rochelle Walensky from the CDC was asked a question about the timeline and the possibility of a vaccine for those, you know, 12 and under or under the age of 12. I imagine your, your parents, your, they've been asking you as well. What, do you have some concerns, though, if there is a, a vaccine that, that might, you know, be up for FDA approval sometime this year? What kind of concerns would you have or do you have? For COVID-19, then, I mean. Yeah, for, yeah I'm yeah. sorry. Let's go back to yeah, COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't have any concerns, Rose. I think that um, these vaccines have been studied very well. Um, we're actually participating in some of the trials here at Emory mm-hmm. and Children's. Um, and so this is really um, lots of surveillance, lots of safety data. Um, and we really, we've seen the, the, the impact of this virus on our whole society and especially on children. And I think we're just beginning to understand the impact of this virus on children. So anything that we can do to prevent, uh, prevent the infection um, is, is really tremendous. Dr. Shen, I'm curious, have you had conversations where you had to try to convince parents who had children that were eligible for the vaccine and maybe it just didn't work? Every day. Really? Um, and, um, but I think... You know, I approach vaccine hesitancy questions as an opportunity to educate. And oftentimes um, when parents have concerns, it's really important to understand what those concerns are and address them. And I've been successful in situations and I've also been not successful in situations, but the way I usually like to leave it is, well, maybe it's not the right decision right this minute, but let's talk about it. Next time you come back, let's think about it and help them understand why they're hesitant. I think that is really important. It's a very individualized approach. And has it been mostly from parents that they just don't know there's not enough information? We hear that a lot. There's not enough yeah. information or the vaccine, it came too soon. That's what we hear quite often. 
Absolutely. And um, because there was so much effort, money, resources uh, into developing a vaccine, it did progress very, very quickly. But the technology that um, underlies the vaccines has been known for 20 or 30 years. There just hasn't been a virus that's been a good opportunity to really um, make this vaccine, uh, this technology into a vaccine. You know, I've been asking everyone who's been a guest on this program as we talk about this time last year and where we are now, but now I've kind of moved the question to focus on the future. And, you know, I I know if everyone had a a crystal ball, they would be able to answer this question. But what to you would be hopefully a good timeline when, you know, look, we could be in this pandemic for a few more years, but in terms of all these different and there's always going to be a new variant, obviously, because that's what folks keep telling us. Where do you hope we are maybe as we begin the new year in 2022? It's a great question. And, you know, I think we're, we're going to have to learn how to live with this virus. Um, we're never going to be able to eradicate it completely. But that's all the more reason why vaccination really is our ticket out um, or ticket to getting to that point. I hope by the end of 2021 that we can have school children vaccinated or at least eligible for vaccination. And hopefully in 2022, in the beginning, the younger ages as well, uh, really, and trying to make sure that the adults who are eligible also um, participate in vaccination. Um, and I think that's that's really the way to getting us back to living the life that we used to know. And finally, Dr. Shane, as we wrap up, I've been asking health officials this as well, because it's so important, the mental health of our frontline workers, folks like you. How are you doing in all this and how, your staff and everyone? And particularly when you're working so, with a young yeah. population like our, yeah. our beloved little ones. Yeah. As germy so, as they are, we love them. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking care of children is the best job in the world, I'd have to say. And thankfully, from a clinical standpoint, we haven't been as affected as many of my colleagues who take care of adults and especially older adults. So thankful on that, um, that front. But also the concern is the long-term impact, the developmental impact, the behavioral impact. Um, this virus has just been uh, tremendous in that way on children. And I think it's going to take us a long time to really understand that. But, you know, trying to make sure that children can return to environments in school where they can participate in their normal activities is going to be important. Um, And we've had support. We try to support each other. We try to take care of each other. Our hospital systems have been really great. Um, I'm personally very lucky to have a very supportive family. And so, um, that's been just uh, just wonderful. And a question here from a listener who says, Rose, please have the doctor again go over the symptoms for respiratory syncytial or RSV um, for our listeners. Um, so it uh, usually starts with a, a runny nose. Um, oftentimes children will have fevers. Um, they can start low, but they can be quite high. Um, coughing is then a symptom that, uh, that comes across. Some children have difficulty breathing, where their chest may pull in. Um, and that would be a, a reason if the child is having difficulty breathing uh, to seek medical care. Uh, some children may not want to eat or drink because they're coughing and they're spending so much energy trying to uh, breathe. And so that would be another indication if a child isn't eating or drinking that uh, they would need medical care. And then another question here, should you attempt to give any over-the-counter medicines, particularly for, for kids that are sold? Right. So one thing that is very helpful is to control fevers. So giving fever controlling medication that's age adjusted for the child's weight is really important. We don't advocate for using cough suppressants or cough mixtures in young children. 
Um, but um, uh, in older children, uh, that may be reasonable. But really, the main thing is fluids and controlling the fever um, are the best options. And we should know to always, of course, consult your family physician. Dr. Andy Shane, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and Medical Director of Infectious Diseases at Children's Health Care of Atlanta. Good conversation. Thank you for the information, Dr. Shane. As always, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Rose. library music for y'all. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Speaking of libraries, last year we know that not only in Georgia but across the nation they had to be innovative in their approach to keep continuing to serve the needs of all the folks that love to go to the library. Now, while many of the doors were closed for some time to those in-person visits, obviously due to safety concerns, libraries expanded their online resources and virtual services. And several local libraries offered curbside pickup. Their parking lots were used as hotspot centers, which was really, really important for a lot of our students, offering free Wi-Fi to households. And on top of all that, local libraries even served as poll locations for the 2020 presidential election. The list goes on and on about how libraries have served as the cornerstones of our communities during the ongoing health crisis. Shout out to Julia Davis Library Branch in St. Louis, Missouri, because without that library, I may not even be here today. Do what you want with that piece of information. Join me now to discuss how we should reimagine our libraries in this 21st century. And of course, the opening of several local libraries. She's been on the show before. She's Probably should get a T-shirt or a mug by now is Gail Hunter-Holloman, the executive director of the Fulton County Library System. Gail, welcome back, back, back to the program. What's your third, fourth appearance? Time, Rose. What, what, this is your uh, fourth, third? What is this? Maybe it's the third. Third, okay. We So we do owe okay. you a T-shirt or something, right? <laughs> we glad to have it. Or a mug. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on here. The mug would be great for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's get our, our listeners up to speed, because is it true now that because last time we spoke, not all of Fulton County libraries were open. Where are we are right now? Well, what's the deal right now? Where we are is everything is open except for the central library, which, is, which has a planned fall library opening. And that's the big one. Fall, downtown. fall, li- fall okay. opening. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, Gail, we now we know we have this Delta variant. There's been a surge right now. Are you all? Carefully, I'm imagining you all are carefully monitoring all of this in case you have to make some adjustments again. Well, what we're doing is we're continuing to make sure that we're always in touch with Fulton County and its uh, directors through the Board of Health. And, of course, always keeping in mind the, the, the governor's uh, edits, uh, edits, rather, whatever he might advise based on the CDC and other resources. So right now we don't have any uh, places, any things in place to say, well, if this happens, then we'll do that. We're just kind of monitoring the situation. Are masks required to enter, be inside the Fulton County Libraries right now? No, the the restrictions have been lifted with regard to that, as well as we lifted the restrictions on not being able to use our meeting rooms, study rooms, and conference rooms. So we are open. 
I know you have to file. I know you all are following, you know, the governors and, and the, the health and the science and all that. But do you have some concerns, Gail? Well, that's always a concern. I mean, just personally, uh, professionally, there are concerns. I mean, we want to make sure that our patrons are, are not put in harm's way when they enter our buildings and use our buildings. We want to make sure that our staff are able to be uh, in good stead when they're at work all day, because that's very important. We don't want to have to close these libraries. And that was the reason we were being very cautious, I felt, and, um, and everyone else within the county, uh, county leadership, that we wanted to not have to close down, you know, open and close down. And we didn't have to do that. And there were some library systems that encountered that situation. Mm-hmm. So I think we were very prudent in our approach. And uh, I think it has made all the difference. Are, were you all encouraging staff to get vaccinated? That's always been encouraged. Uh, vaccinations have been uh, something that the county has talked about. And of course, it's a personal decision, but it was definitely one that we wanted to put out there. And the county invested quite a lot of activity. And in fact, some libraries, uh, we had vaccinations taking place in our meeting rooms. Mm-hmm. So we did allow that and, uh, and the county set that up. So we, we were vaccination sites. Our staff went out and actually um, signed people up for vaccinations. So we've done all that type of thing to be supportive of it. And of course, it is a personal decision, but we have encouraged it off staff and, of course, of patrons. When you look back to last year and where you all are now, do you feel confident that you all can continue through this pandemic to offer all those services? And I imagine, too, cleaning as well. I mean, because we've we've all been talked up, been talking about, you know, the importance of, of maintaining social distancing cleaning, all those things, you all are prepared to just keep that going? We are prepared to keep it going. You know, it's a challenge, I have to tell you. Uh, This is why until July 1, we did not, we were open, but we were not allowing those spaces to be used in the sense of study rooms and meeting rooms and conference rooms. We lifted that as of July 1st. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the concern had been, and and, you know, that we want to make sure we could maintain the cleanliness of those areas. Um, but right now we feel that we're able to do so. We have our cleaning crews on a nightly basis. We have day porters coming in. And so we feel that what is humanly possible to be done is being done. And what are you hearing from patrons as they, or what are you hearing from your library staff as patrons come back in that they are glad that you all are, are now open? Patrons have expressed such delight in our being open again. It's, it's been amazing. And the smiles on the children's faces and, and others and from all ages, it's just been amazing. The support and the patience has been just phenomenal, I think. And, uh, you know, there's nothing is ever perfect. You're not going to get, you know, 100% rave reviews all the time. But for the most part, we can say that it has been successful and people have really gravitated back. And we're seeing the results of that coming back. You know, pre-pandemic, there was a lot of conversations, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation, you know, as it relates to our our, our libraries and because of technology and folks saying, well, not many folks are still using the libraries. But what we saw during the pandemic, and, and here's a quote here from the State of America's Libraries Report. Uh, look, as we assess the State of America's libraries, we find 2020 was a year when library professionals answered the call to serve amid multiple emergencies and a year when library workers again proved to be essential first restorers or second responders. What do you make of that? I totally agree. We were we were definitely second responders, but first restorers. I think that people look for us to be there as a part of their information resource. And they were able to, to, to stay online, to, to fill their days with story times for their kids if they were at home with them. And it just made a difference. Those virtual programs that we were able to do on Facebook Live, 
I mean, our staff stepped up like never before. We had people who just went out above their normal routine presenting programs for all ages online. And so you could, you could tune into those and people could look forward to that. They could uh, get some peace or maybe if they worked at home themselves, they could have a little bit of respite from uh, some of the things they had to do with their children because they could put them there for story time programs. So we made a difference. We were consistent and they consistently used the resources that were made available. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Gail hunterman Holloman, the executive director of the Fulton County Library System. And so now, Gail, look, if there is any other time where you want some more money in the budget <laughs> to get more things, uh, now's the time to do it. Well, we're always re- uh, waiting for our Fulton County to ask us what we might want. And, you know, they, they, they listen to us. We can't always say we're going to get what we want, but, but I think it's a wonderful process. And so we will be approaching that very shortly in the next few weeks. And uh, we've made the county consistently aware. They were very good to us last year with the pandemic by giving us almost $2 million extra million for our virtual programming. That was never uh, just unheard of before. I, I think that uh, some good things that came out of that whole pandemic is that um, I believe leadership was able to really see a little bit more of just how valuable libraries are and just what we can offer and how the public will respond to us. And I think that that made all the difference uh, as we did, as we participated in the elections process. I think that gave an opportunity for them to stop by a lot more and see us in action and see our rooms and our facilities in use. And I just really think it opened their eyes to some things that, um, you know, they may not have known just by someone telling them. Well, let me ask you this. What is on Gail's list for the libraries in Fulton County? Oh, that's always a list, you know, um, <laughs> Lots of great things. Uh, the push for, for going into the end of this year and into next year will center upon customer service. And it's going to also focus a lot on literacy. You'll hear us talk more and more about that. And I hope that over time you can have me or some of my other staff on your show to talk more about literacy. We really want to present a challenge for K through three or K through five students so that we can build on that ability to read and read well. I do think we can position ourselves to take that on. Uh, we're going to have a one book, uh, one read, one book. Uh, going into the new year. So you hear more about that. The Central Library is uh, the first is front and center of what we're trying to do mm-hmm. because we want to open it uh, at toward the end of September of this year. So we're doing that right now. The staff's in place. I'm back in my office here at the Central Library and we're going full force with contractors in the building and staff in the building to get these books and other materials on the shelves. And so those are our plans. We're, we're, we're trying to make sure that we get this Fabulous library out there so everybody can see it and use it and make it a destination place. And, you, and you're talking about a lot of money that went into it when, and also a time when there was talks about maybe it should the building should be demolished. It's an incredible building. Let's shift for a moment and stay with that because that central library is going to be crucial. It's supposed to be a state-of-the-art library. What can you share with us so far? I know you've been roaming around there, Gail, probably with a hard hat. You ain't supposed to be, but I know you have. Well, the, I did. Well, the hard hat period has ended, thank goodness. But um, it has been a phenomenal undertaking. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate in my career. A, a lot of librarians don't ever get to experience this building program at the level that we've had it. But um, the central library will have tons of computers. We are going to have an event center uh, on the fifth floor. It's, it's just a phenomenal undertaking. I think that uh, there was some concern about uh, whether or not we would turn the building into something no one recognized, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, because of the great work of uh, Marcel Boria, who was, this was his last building that he designed. He did, uh, as you know, he designed the Whitney Museum in New York. Mm-hmm. And so there was some concern about changing out windows and things like that. But I think that we were, um, the architects and everyone 
were very astute and I think they were very um, um, respectful of his work. Mm-hmm. And I think people will be able to see that even the wonderful architects. And I, I find architects to just be so phenomenal. And if you ever get a chance to go, if you haven't already gone to an architect's office, it's just so cool to me. Yeah. But anyway, we have really enjoyed uh, working with everyone on the project. You're going to find lots of great spaces. We're going to be able to have lots of exhibits, uh, present authors and lecture series. Uh, they're going to see tons of exhibits around. There's going to be a lot of computers to use and a lot of classes and things that we were not able to offer in great spaces that would allow us to do things simultaneously. And that's gonna be a a great thing. We have a beautiful media tower outside the building where we can announce our programs, not only for Central, but throughout the organization. And they'll be able to see it from way up on Peachtree Street uh, at some um, uh, points of of look. And I think that that's gonna position us to to be a better um, partner downtown within the downtown area, Mm -hmm. as well as to be the catalyst for what we do in the whole library system. And you all just recently celebrated the completion of four newly renovated libraries. When you think about Fulton County as a whole, you feel like you have every part of the county. You have a library for no matter where you live in Fulton County, you have access to a library. We do. And that's a great point, uh, Rose. We uh, Fulton County spans 73 miles. And within those 73 miles, we have 34 libraries. Uh, of course, only 33 are in operation right now, but with Central, we'll be back to 34 in operation. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, it is a wonderful thing to know that you can go almost uh, within less than three miles, in most cases, to a library within your community. And uh, in some cases, it's a mile and a half. So it's just really a beautiful situation. And of course, using our holes process, you can check out books from wherever and have them sent to where you'd rather pick them up. So it is a great undertaking. I don't know that people understand exactly what goes on in libraries, but we don't get a chance to read books all day. We, <laughs> we do have a lot of things that we have to you know, get things moving. So those couriers who do a fine uh, job of moving these items those 73 miles uh, really uh, makes it happen. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it. Are y'all hiring? Because I get folks all the time emailing, looking for Want to know where their work is? Are y'all hiring? Which I got open, open over we, there. We will be hiring. We uh, we had a hiring freeze in the county for a while. Now we're gearing up to put those to post those jobs. So I would encourage them to go to the website, the Fulton County's website, and uh, look at those job openings for whatever jobs they might want, whether it's the library or other departments. And as we begin to wrap up, you know, we started this conversation talking about obviously where where you all were last year and where you are now. And you're hopeful that as we go into 2022, you know, the Central Library will be opening as it relates to the pandemic, your optimism toward not having to shut down again. Right. That's exactly right. We we want to really embrace our customer service and our literacy. That's it. So yeah. our, our approach to that. And I think that's going to make a difference. And I'm hoping that people will, will really gravitate toward it. I believe they will. And Gail, you know, I always, when we in our conversations, I always ask you about what you read and have you been able to pick up anything new? I have an author well, coming I, on the show Monday, so, you know, I want to sound like I'm pretty smart when I talk to her. Oh, okay. I understand. Who's the author? Can you say? Vanessa Riley, and the book is called Queen Island. Okay. All right. I'll have to check that out for myself. Well, right now, I, I just bought it a few days back. I'm going to be reading John Grisham's new book, fairly new book. It's called Suli, mm-hmm. and the character is a basketball player, and I, I love basketball. So uh, that's that's going to really grab my interest. And someone actually recommended it to me. So I've got that coming up. We have a one book, one read coming up in the early part of the year. And we're looking at reading um, uh, 
cast by oh, yeah. Isabel Wickerson. Mm-hmm. And we think that you'll hear more and more about that as we move forward with it. So it's just going to be a phenomenal time for us. Did we see an explosion in book clubs this past year? No, I can't say com- com- concretely that that's the case, but we know we have we have ongoing book clubs all along uh, within this library system, for instance. And uh, we have at least, I think it's nine to 12 ongoing book clubs. And that's wonderful for us because uh, it really makes a difference to have people that are so enthusiastic about reading. And book clubs are a unique way to form uh, places, to opportunities for you to interact as well as for you to share knowledge and questions. Gail, question from a listener here who wants to know, what about children's books? What do you got? That can I'm re- reading? Yeah, can you recommend anything? Or recommending? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I just have to be honest and tell you, Rose, I have not read a, child, a children's book in a good while, but we have uh, phenomenal children's librarians all over this sure library system. And they will be glad to point you in the direction of some really great books. I don't happen to know of a new one right now that's come out, but uh, I've always been a, uh, a fan of uh, uh, Eric Carle's books, mm-hmm. and I think he passed away quite recently. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely recommend uh, any of those picture books. And, and other opportunities. And our listeners, I love them because sometimes they're like a producer. Uh listener says, ask her about the most checked out books during the pandemic. I don't know if you know that, Gail. Do you the know most that? checked out books during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, like oh my home goodness. improvement, I I, gardening. Well, I will say that uh, what we did uh, about maybe two or three months ago, we made a decided push to purchase uh, those books that have to do with table, coffee table books is what you would normally call them. Mm-hmm. And people love those books. I remember that from the days of when I was a branch manager. So our collection management staff bought uh, books on redecorating DIY, uh, other decorating books, and they went off the shelf like hotcakes. So not off the shelves because right then we weren't open, but went out the door uh, through curbside service like hotcakes. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, because people, so they, people, they, they, people they're at home. home. They're like, let me redecorate. They, and, you know, let me build. They were at home right. and gardening, all of that, all of those books were a part of it. So I encourage them to continue that because it's always a great thing. <laughs> Gail Hunter-Holloman is the executive director of the Fulton County Library System. Gail, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. You all always have good information. And thank you for what y'all been doing to continue to serve the community throughout all of this. Thank you, Rose, for having us. I appreciate it. We will get you a T-shirt and a mug in the mail. Now, I don't know when it'll get there because the U.S. Postal Service has some, you know, they've been a little slow. <laughs> but we'll we'll get it to you. You might want to just come pick it up. I don't know. <laughs> but let me know. Just let me know. We'll be glad to do so. All right. Thanks, Thank Gail. some programming information for you coming up on monday show as a lot of school districts are preparing to bring the kids back to the classrooms we're going to be in a, we're going to begin a series of conversations with local superintendents and we kick it off with dr morsey beasley who is the superintendent of clayton county schools we'll hear about what their plan is all about and also are you a fan of bridgerton I know Kevin, our engineer, used to watch it all the time. Well, the Bridgerton team is going to adapt Atlanta author Vanessa Riley's Island Queen epic novel about a once enslaved woman who goes on to become one of the most richest, wealthiest Caribbean entrepreneurs. That's coming up on Monday's show. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can always let us know what you think of any of the topics you heard on the program. Just send me an email, 
rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. And you can subscribe to Closer Look and all of our WABE podcasts wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Have a good weekend, everyone. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.